Hi there, this is Paranormal Blip, episode 17, and this is an episode dedicated to Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar, a controversial figure, I think it's fair to say, and it's taken a bit of time to research this area for me to feel comfortable enough to talk about it and stake a claim on the side, we, it, one of the sides of the story here, yeah, like uh, pro or con, if you like. Um, do I believe him or do I not? And there's plenty of people that are still making their mind up about that. I obviously am as well. Um, having said that, I do decide, um, you know, for the most part, uh, as, um, you know, Bigelow, beautiful Bigelow talks about um, it in terms of the balance of uh, risk. You know, if you were going to put money on whether he was, uh, did all the things he said he did at um, S4 in Area 51. Um, you know, you've got to kind of think about it. And did he or not? Well, you know, I'm willing to not put any money on it, but I certainly am willing to give my opinion. But before that, we're going to look at the news. And then we've got a juicy archive as well. This is a heck of an episode to join us. And if you are interested in joining nearly a thousand people now on Twitter that follow me, then please do. It's uh, at Paranormal Blip on Twitter. And on Instagram, our uh, following on Instagram is uh, continuing to rise, even though I totally ignore them over there on Instagram. So I'm really sorry about that. I need to get my act together with Instagram. Um, now, it's uh, Paranormal underscore Blip underscore podcast on Instagram. Also, you can email me at paranormalblip at... Uh, gmail.com. Now, the first thing now is the news. So we're going to go into the blimps and then we're going to start with news and then we go into the main part of the episode, which is Bob Lazar. And I'll go into the structure of like how that's going to play in that section. And then we're going to go into a juicy archive with Joe Mergia and near-death experiences. He was talking about this just yesterday, actually. So hot off the press. All right, let's go into the blomps. For the news. The news this week looks at a new article in Wired magazine. Is that what you call it? Or just Wired, maybe? Um, and it's an interview and a profile of Jacques Vallée. It's called Jacques Vallée Still Doesn't Know What UFOs Are. And the sub... What do they call that? The sub bit it says after subheading, is it? Maybe after six globe trotting decades spent probing the phenomenon, the French information scientist is sure of only one thing. The truth is really, really out there. Now, Wired is a subscription um, publication. And so uh, luckily, though, you do get one article to read a month. I know this because I read the article <laughs> and then it locks you out. So, you know, by all means, subscribe to um, Wired if you wish. But if you're not subscribed to Wired, then you can read the article. And you know what is really interesting is that this works in the United Kingdom. So I expect it will work in other places as well. But what I'll do is give a brief overview of the um, of the article. Essentially, it goes into a lot of detail. It's definitely worth reading if you're a fan of Jacques Vallée. And it's really interesting because it clearly st states, and um, 
you know, uh, points to where he's at in terms of the struggle to um, get UFO research into the mainstream kind of scientific community. And of course, we know that the way that he's doing that is working with Gary Nolan, who is, uh, you know, kind of analysing various uh, metamaterials, and then they are writing up uh, papers on it, and those papers are going to be submitted to, or they have been, start, this process is that they're starting to be submitted to mainstream scientific uh, journals and peer-reviewed and all the rest of the kind of process that journals published, uh, papers published in scientific journals uh, undergo. So that's the kind of new frontier of Valet's work, essentially. And the way that he talks about it is really beautiful. Um, it begins basically with a conversation between a, a meeting at a very beautiful sounding um, restaurant in San Francisco. And if you're Jack Valet, then, you know, why not go to a beautiful restaurant um, with with a, a editor of one of these scientific journals uh, eating with Valet and, um, you know, My Dinner with Andre. That's a good film, isn't it? Yeah, whoa, really good. I love that guy. Uh, what's his name, the little guy? He's brilliant, isn't he? Not Andre, but the other guy, the guy that does the voice for one of the Toy Story characters. Wallace Shawn. Is it Wallace Shawn? Yeah, I think his name is Wallace Shawn. He's brilliant, isn't he? Anyway, but it's not Andre. He's not having dinner with Andre. He's having dinner with Gary and Jacques. So that dude, the editor, can go home and he say, he gets a cab because, oh, it's sort of very interesting. Do you, have you ever seen My Dinner with Andre? It's a really good film, My Dinner with Andre. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's his kind of aim, if you like, is to, as we all know, you know, trying to get into um, the kind of scientific uh, journalists, um, journals. But what's really interesting is it goes into, uh, in detail, into his life. And he was influenced uh, quite heavily by Jung, who had a sense, he wrote a book called Flying Saucers, something like the modern myth of flying saucers, something like that, in um, 1957. This is Jung I'm talking about, Carl Jung. And uh, Valet was very interested in UFOs after his own experience when he was a child. He um, found it very difficult to align himself with just the kind of nuts and bolts aspect of people that investigated UFOs. This is like, you know, way, way back in history, you know, like the uh, mid-20th century we're talking and and then the other group, of course, who just thinks that it's all a load of old nonsense, he thought, well, there must be a third way whereby there's something other than just the nuts and bolts is going on. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a kind of uh, paranormal uh, component of this, you know. And all these years later now, the new way of looking at the paranormal, which has become more and more accepted in the UFO community, is oh, sorry, the new way of looking at UFOs become more and more accepted in the UFO community in the last couple of months, the last six months or so. And there's lots of people kicking and screaming and not wanting to take a look at it. But for me, it's like self-evident. Like I spoke about this in um, like my first episode, like so obvious that there's a connection between all of these things. I mean, it's like, you know, you don't need to be a 
like Jack Vallée to work that out. But thankfully, of course, I can quite comfortably say that it's obvious to me because I know about Vallée's work. You know what I mean? So anyway, it's a really interesting article. It's definitely worth the read. And I think that if you don't subscribe, you should be able to read it uh, fresh, if you like, because you get at least one subscription per month. So that uh, is in the episode links. And intriguingly, he, they talk about a kind of um, uh, like a, a modern invisible college. So a group of academics and researchers um, who kind of meet up, probably, well, almost definitely virtually meet up occasionally to talk about their research, very hush-hush about it. But Valet has made kind of like um, certificates of entry to this club, which is a, you know, very beautiful thing to do, you know, very charismatic and cheeky thing to do. And um, Gary Nolan is very proud to show the reporter his kind of entry to this club, his like entry certificate. Uh, but they are very hush hush on the actual name of the of the of the club, the name of this group of um, individuals that used to apparently they say like it's not happening anymore I'm not entirely sure if i believe that because why wouldn't it happen you know but nevertheless the article does say that this club for whatever reason has been disbanded now in that incredibly they talk about a um senior member of a european um royal family now the only senior member of the european royal family that i know that was into ufos was Prince Philip, and he was quite heavily into UFOs for years. He had a, like famously, he had a big UFO collection of books. So I wonder whether Prince Philip was, you know, in there with Jack Vallée, you know? It's quite intriguing to think about that, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, oh, the Queen's got COVID, by the way, as I uh, speak. And, um, you know, it's either going to go one of two ways with COVID, doesn't it, for everyone? But it's Omicron, so the vast majority of people with Omicron obviously don't end up in the hospital and don't end up dead but she's 95 years old so you know who knows what's going to happen i mean she's 95 i know that she's got very good doctors and all the rest of it but anyway this isn't a podcast associated with a covid necessarily but i just thought i'd mention it you know as i be rude not to if i'm talking about her, her husband you know anyway i wonder if she'll see um well, this is a link to the archive now, but I wonder if she'll see Prince Philip on her deathbed. And is it Prince Philip? That's the big question that Joe Merger is asking. Joe Merger is asking. So anyway, right. So listen, if you want to read that Wired article, that um, Jack Vallée profile, then the link to the Wired article is in the episode description. After the blomps, we're talking Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar, Bob Lazar. So um, the thing about Bob Lazar is that it has really split the UFO community. And what I'm going to present to you now is a bit of a summary of the kind of basics uh, that George Knapp gave in an interview that he did in uh, 2014 that is linked in the episode description, as is basically everything, as is my way. Um, so the way that uh, you access that is just to go to the episode description and it will bring up massive numbers of links. 
I, I mean, you know, I'm talking to you as if you're someone's nan. What is that about nans? The second time I've spoken about nans. Today it's nan day. Um, I think maybe the queen is all of our nans. <coughs> anyway, um, yeah, so he basically divides opinion. And we're going to be hearing from a whole heck of a lot of people, um, interviews they've given over the years, uh, giving their uh, their take on... Bob Lazar. And it's interesting. I mean, he's one of those figures that in that UFO podcast, which is the, you know, can't miss an episode podcast that Andy does. Andy, uh, whatever his name is, surname, Muck something, isn't it? Um, you know, that's one of his kind of quick fire questions, isn't it? What do you think of Bob Lazar? And it's quite interesting, like, you know, uh, listening to people's response to that but we'll come to that later first of all let's go into um george knapp's kind of a bit of a summary of who bob lazar is okay could you summarize for us the biggest revelations coming from bob lazar bob lazar says he was hired to work into this program that was under the auspices of the u.s navy and he worked at a facility called s4 south of area 51 in groom lake and that this facility was built in the side of a, a mountain that there was a series of hangars, nine different hangars built into the side of this mountain designed to look like desert. In each one of these hangars was a saucer-like craft, a craft that was from somewhere else. Bob said that he was primarily working on the propulsion system, which he said was an anti-gravity propulsion system. The fuel is something called element 115, a heavy element. At the time that he told that story in 1989, it did not exist. It has since been synthesized in much smaller pieces. Bob described it as a stable and heavy, um, and, and what we have synthesized now that does not match that description, but he thinks that maybe someday we might be able to get it. He thinks the fuel came from a, a binary star system where it was uh, an, in natural abundance. So he said he saw one of these craft being tested. Uh, he did a number of experiments on the anti-gravity reactor that were pretty much amazing. This thing could create its own gravitational field. And he says the way that the aliens could get to Earth is they create their own gravitational field, and this gravity allows them to bend space and time. And instead of it propelling them forward, say they're on their planet and they want to get to Earth, instead of propelling them toward Earth, it would, in effect, pull Earth toward them. It would bend space and time, turn it off, and it goes back to normal, and you would be on Earth, but no time had gone by. So that's a bit of a um, summary of, um, you know, Lazar's position at S4. And I, I think that George Knapp in that clip said that there were nine craft. So at one stage... All of the, um, you know, the doors, the hangar doors were opened and uh, Lazar could kind of look through and see these nine craft. So there's a couple of things to say. Now, number one, we could have do a whole podcast about how Lazar got there and whether he was at Los Alamos and whether he met Edward Teller and all the rest of it. You know, but I don't have a whole podcast about how he got there. I'm looking at the podcast based on, uh, you know, he was there. You know, at least we can discuss whether he was there or not. I don't want to do a podcast about whether he was at um, Los Alamos or not. Yeah. But anyway, was he there? Well, let's take a look at some of the things that he said were happening while he was there. He saw the nine craft. We know about that. And all the craft were in different shapes. 
And he said that there were 22 people working on the crafts only, the craft, uh, the crafts only. And he was only in communication with one other guy, or certainly kind of working every day with one other guy, this guy called Barry. And Barry is, um, I think it was Barry Castillo, yeah? Barry, C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O. I think that's correct, but get Barry Castillo. And uh, now that name is on the Art Bell link. So if you're interested in that, go to the uh, Art Bell link. Yeah. But um, nobody's been able to find Barry Castillo. I mean, you know, why would you? Because you'd change your name, wouldn't you? Um, and then they also kind of were in contact with their uh, kind of like supervisor, who was the person that would come in, this kind of, you know, army dude or whatever, like some kind of military guy who would come in occasionally and say, like, well, you know, where you're at. But every day, day to day, he would, uh, not every day, actually, because he, he would get a phone call, you know, at 11 o'clock, he gives the the uh, example to, you know, to kind of make the point of the kind of haphazard nature of, or the kind of unscheduled, if you like, nature of when he would be asked to come in. He would get a phone call at 11 p.m. and be told, be at the airport by 11.45 and then when he was at the airport in um, Las Vegas, he was then flown out to Area 51. And then from Area 51, he was put on a bus with blacked out windows and then brought to S4. S4 is the base that, you know, he claims the um, nine air, uh, spaceships are based or flying saucers are based. And... Uh, they are uh, kind of the, the, they use uh, kind of like they stick sand somehow they kind of like paint sand or spray sand onto the uh, side of the mountain so you can't really tell that it, there's anything there and it's kind of built into the mountain this base yeah so from a kind of outside point of view and we'll get to the area this this is called Papoose Lake where S4 is it's quite intriguing area we'll get to talking about that later on but i'm just kind of setting up um you know what he did there he worked on this uh uh anti-gravitational um you know source of energy essentially essentially and it was fueled by this stuff called element 115 element 115 that he came to realize, you know, you can't really kind of make this. We actually have been able to make this since, um, but it only lasts for a couple of seconds. Now, the way that you um, attack an element is that you, and try to make it stable, is that you bombard it by neutrons. And so uh, we're, you know, kind of trying to get a stable element 115. It hasn't happened yet. It may well not happen. I mean, who knows what it, whether it will happen. But Bob Lazar, when he was talking about Element 115, although theoretically people thought it might be out there, it hadn't yet been added to the uh, periodic table. It now is on the periodic table, and it's called Muscovium. Muscovium, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so what, it, what makes it, you know, 115 is that it's got 115 protons, and that doesn't change. What changes is the number of isotopes that are kind of added to it by bombarding it with neutrons. And so, you know, the the hope is that you're going to get it uh, kind of stable. 
and theoretically at least it will you know it will we will get to a point where we bombard it with enough neutrons for it to become stable and so this is why you know nap says that they these guys these alien fellas that sent us all this stuff must have come from a place where it was a naturally occurring substance because you need quite a bit of it to you know kind of play around with your bloody engines don't, don't you your propellers uh, your um you know anti gravitation anti gravity a propulsion system, I should say, not an engine. I shouldn't use the word engine. No. So now, so we've got the, that's basically what he did, you know, day in and day out when he was actually at S4, he worked on this anti-gravitation propulsion system. And so you have to think, okay, well, what is the evidence there that there's something in this? Well, you take a look at the uh, patents from that guy, Salvatore Paez, who works for the Navy. And you take a look at, uh, you know, um, George Elizondo, who has spoken about him knowing about those patents. And he kind of says it in a lovely... Did, did I just say George Elizondo? I've got George Knapp on my mind, man. I've been watching these videos of George Knapp, like in the 80s and 90s. And he is like... Uh, he's... Um, you know, too hot to handle. Um, so I've got George Knapp on the mind. Sorry, Lou Alessandro. Lou Alessandro is saying that he knows about the um, the uh, patents that Salvatore Paez has come up with in the last couple of years. And uh, also, you just need to look at the Tic Tac, um, you know, video. You need to look at the way that the gimbal moves. Uh, because one of the things that um, Lazar said is that once he saw a test flight, okay? So Lazar saw a test flight, and one of the, uh, like, of course, if you're going to make this thing up, there's loads of stuff that he says. I mean, there's like proof uh, that, from my point of view, that there's something in Lazar's story. Okay, we'll come to that in a minute. But one of the things he said is that in the test flight, the thing kind of like, like went uh, kind of turned onto its belly so it rose up the this um the flying saucer it, it rose up like levitated but then it turned on its belly to start moving around and you think that's like really weird that you would say that you know like if you're making it up why on earth are you got getting this thing turned on its belly but then the gimbal video does very something very similar you know it kind of rotates 90 degrees okay so and then you think of the Tic Tac video. Then you think of the fact that um, George Knapp and, oh, my God, I'm talking about George Knapp again. Um, <laughs> Bob Lazar, and George Knapp was there, actually. Bob Lazar and um, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp and David Fravor met up because they were all doing a UFO um, conference together. And Fravor and Lazar met and spoke. And Fravor, you know, thinks, well, okay, you know, he's like, he's not insane, you know. I tried to find an actual quote for him, but he, I didn't, so I paraphrased terribly. But, you know, there's the, the something that tells me something, okay. And I know that, you know, Jeremy Corbell released a photograph of all of them, and Jeremy Corbell has got a film to send you. But I think that if you're interested in Bazaar, Bizarre, <laughs> um, Lazar, then watch Corbell's film. Like, it's a good film. It gives you the basics of 
of what's going on. It gets a bit kind of cloak and dagger with the element 115, but apparently Lazar says that he's got a bit of the element, element 115, and Nap has seen the elephant 115. <laughs> so um, anyway, but it does say something to me that um, Favour and, and Lazar have spoken and that, you know, there's something in it from um, Favour's point of view. I think that's fair to say that Favour hasn't come out, Favour hasn't come out and said, you know, this is all a load of old nonsense. So that kind of, you know, makes sense to me. And if you just like see in your own eyes, like the Tic Tac video, it certainly fits, um, you know, like at least potentially that might be a way that they are uh, propelling the Tic Tac around using the um, anti-gravitational propeller thing. Propellant, what's the word? I'll just say engine again. The anti-gravitational engine, yeah? So that, that's very interesting, isn't it? Now, here is a lovely bit of detail that um, that Lazar has said in one of the interviews, which is linked. Not too sure which one. But this is about a candle. Now, this is... Uh, I have put in the episode links, although I'm not kind of using any of the audio, um, the, the Rogan interview, because I think that that's a, you know, a kind of landmark bit of this whole story. And I've also put in the Corbell film, of course. Like, you know, if you're interested in Lazar, then of course you've got to watch the Corbell film, you know? And um, that is a landmark moment as well. So, um, but this isn't, this this candle story isn't in the Rogan interview. So this is really interesting. And this is, again, you know, if you're going to make this up, if you're a physicist, you wouldn't make this up. Okay, because it goes against everything that you think would happen if you kind of bring a candle near, um, you know, kind of gravity, yeah? So take a listen to this. That can change everything we know today, just having a machine to produce artificial gravity. Because look, look at what that does. We know gravity, space, and time are all tied together. There are your shields, like on Star Trek, that, you know, deflect micrometeorites. There is your protection from radiation without heavy shielding. There is something that with an intense enough focused field, you can actually bend space. And there is something that can actually alter the flow of time. I mean, that's the missing piece of pie. Didn't they actually freeze a, a, a candle? Flame yeah, now that's when it was connected to the gravity amplifiers where they could focus it. And uh, that they, was... They froze a candle? Yeah, they had a they had a candle lit uh, to set it up for you. Um, again, there's a large in the craft itself. There are three long pipes. Um, I'd say, uh, well, I don't know about what's that, three four feet in diameter, maybe five feet long. Um, anyway, they dangle the three of them at the bottom of the craft. These produce gravitational waves and they can focus them to a point or spread them apart. Those um, are what you call the wave guys? Yeah, okay. yeah. They're part of the uh, power source control mechanism and the uh, wave, well, the waveguide is what I actually call the interlink between okay. them, but that that's the gravitational engines. Um, they had one of those devices out along with the subsystem that connects it. So. They can produce the power from the reactor, 
it runs the gravity amplifier and they can focus and change the gravity beam that comes out of it. They took, uh, they were, speaking of Barry, took a candle, put it close to the mouth of it, lit it, a normal flickering candle flame, and then activated the reactor. The gravity wave came out as expected and the candle flame remained luminous and stopped moving. And because I mean, physics, yeah, because look, if it's going to freeze it, the photon should stop being emitted. If it's going to, you know, change the characteristics, look, how can the combustion continue to take place without the convection inside the flame? Because actually, the reason a flame is elongated is not not really because of heat; it's because of gravity. Because gravity pulls down, and you know, convection moves flames upward. It's why in, in a zero gravity environment, flame is a ball, obviously. There's nothing to pull things around. But anyway, if, uh, look, if you negate the gravity around it, why is it still pointy? How can it still be making light? And why doesn't it move? Well, I mean, he, from what Barry said, it's not just gravity, but it's also time lock. You've they distorted the, frame of time. yeah, they it essentially froze a, a piece of time there. and I, you know what do you say? I mean, you're—it's empirical evidence. You're looking at it. It's not—it's not, it's not a. See it. it doesn't make sense that you could see it. And uh, uh, look, it—the it, stuff I saw there was the most unbelievable, literally, because it—it—it it, it defied what what we knew as physics. It doesn't make sense. I love the way he says it doesn't make sense. There's a doesn't make sense. And, um, yeah, that reminds me, that thing of, you know, it changes everything. It changes, gravity can change space and time. Reminds me of this thing that Ben Rich, the guy that ran um, Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works for years, like he supposedly says, and I'll play a little clip in a minute. Um, he supposedly said that, yeah, we, we can, we've got enough technology to send E.T. home which is, um, you know, quite extraordinary. You know, for years and years, going back 70 years, um, there's been rumor that uh, sequestered away, and, you know, Halpert was saying it the other day in that interview he gave, you know, people have sequestered away um, pretty advanced stuff and, you know, not telling anyone. And even if you're a kind of, you know, guy that's made it all the way up to the top of the military, if you're not read into it, then you're not just going to be read into it because you're curious. So here are the uh, former colleagues of Ben Rich talking about Ben Rich. In 1976, I got a flyer from the School of Engineering inviting me to a lecture by Ben Rich. Ben Rich was the director of Lockheed Skunk Works for 16 years. He oversaw a number of USAPs that were secretly managed at the Skunk Works, including, most notably, the development of the F-117 stealth fighter. Ben shared a slide set of about 40 slides of different things, starting with the U-2 spy plane, going all the way up to the uh, stealth fighter at that time, mentioning that uh, he couldn't talk about the other secret stuff. But when he ended his talk, was he had a slide of a black disc zipping off into outer space. And he ended his, his talk with these words, we now have the technology to take ET home. So you have to have vision, and you have to have the guts and the courage to go out past the steps and do something of any value, and we have to go past our grasp. 
Um, and we asked them questions about it. You know, what did you mean when you said we have the technology to take ET home? Um, ben shared three major things that I think are, are worthy of research by uh, researchers worldwide at this point in time. Uh, the first was we've somehow figured out how to do interstellar travel already. It's known. The second point he made was that there was an error in the equations. My suspicion is it's probably Maxwell's equations for electromagnetic magnetic theory. The third thing he said was, how does ESP work? And I was really kind of startled because I didn't know what to say. But I blurted out, I don't know, all points in time and space are connected. And he looked me back in the eye and he said, that's how it works. So that's fascinating, you know, this idea that um, research is being undertaken in the realm of consciousness and linking that to uh, the, um, you know, the kind of the craft, if you like. So this idea of nuts and bolts and the uh, kind of more esoteric, um, you know, kind of consciousness, um, paranormal um, sense of their connection to UFOs coming together, coming together in the lab, coming together in the kind of workplace of these um, organizations that are kind of off the books looking at this. Um, that's really interesting. Of course, there's no real way of verifying whether, you know, Ben Rich said that apart from listening to the people that say they were there. And there's plenty of them. It's not just that guy. And if you go into the uh, video clip of that, you can find that dude's name. I think it begins with, his surname begins with N. I think that will narrow it down slightly for you. <laughs> um, so this is it's quite, you know, so we're, we're getting along now the track where it's becoming less of a UFO story and more of a story about a way of approaching this phenomena going forward. And certainly my, you know, eyes have been opened in terms of hopefully where the kind of mainstream uh, kind of UFO interested people are going to be going more and more. And we can see this actually in the kind of output over the last couple of months, you know, that great podcast um, that Andy does, that UFO podcast, speaking to um, experiences in the last couple of months, which is, you know, outstanding. And the guests that uh, Lou has on um, uh, Unidentified Celebrity Review, you know. And um, so it's really very positive from my point of view because right from the very beginning, because of people that are close to me, people that have had these experiences, not me, I've had none of them. I mean, even my partner's seeing ghosts left, right and centre these days. But I'm not getting a snifter of it. <laughs> but, um, you know, th th we we're now getting to the stage where we can start thinking about this as a whole, you know, and as everything is connected. But anyway, let's just focus now, I'm telling myself this, um, on on the Lazar story, because there's a couple of intriguing uh, bits that I haven't mentioned yet. Number, one of them is that he talks about this in the Rogan podcast, is that he's he was told that one of them is an archaeological uh, find, okay? Now, we also know from Lou Elizondo talking to Max Moscovich uh, in one of their brilliant interviews that they've done, quite a few of them, um, Lou said something very similar, okay? So this is intriguing. And Lou as well, as I think uh, to Max and a few other people, has spoken about, oh, yeah, there's this excellent bit in one of, which I'm going to link this episode, actually. 
It's like absolute must-watch. One of the best interviews Alexander's done so far. Um, where he's, do you remember the interview with Max where he uh, he he sketches out, kind of like draws a diagram of one of these, um, you know, crafts, and then the gravitational field of two crafts together, and then the gravitational field of three crafts together. You know, absolutely extraordinary um, broadcast that. Brilliant stuff. And in that episode, he says, let's say, you, so he's talking about like Max did this great question, you know, do um, do, they, do the crafts have different purposes? Is the reason why there's different shapes craft, great shaped craft, um, because they have different purposes? And Lou says, oh, that's an interesting question, as he does, you know. Terrible impression there. Sorry, Mr. Elizander. Um, and then he kind of sketches it all out. But he says, like, let's just take as an example a sports car. Now, Lou Elizondo calls it a sports model, right? So, you know, the, you know how Lou works, you know, given the old breadcrumbs. Whenever he's asked specifically what he thinks about um, Bob Lazar, Lou, Lou Elizondo gives this the same answer all the time. I've never met the man. I don't know him. I can't say one way or the other. He's very, very straight down the bat. He's, you know, there's a very good opportunity for him to do what um, Eric Davis has done, for instance, and say, and basically kind of, you know, rubbish um, Lazar, yeah? Do I keep saying George Lazar? I've got George Knapp on the mind. George Knapp on the mind. You know, but Eric Davis um, has said, you know, it's all cockamamie. You know, he doesn't have the um, uh, the education to have that job. You know, he, he was never there and all the rest of it, yeah? Now, I think we can kind of, we know, and I'll get to talking about it in a bit, we do know that he was there, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But, um, you know, Lou Elizondo could choose to do that, okay? There's no reason, I mean, he spoke about, um, Enar, what's her name? Enali, uh, Angelia, is that her name? You know, they remember that person. Anjali, I think, yeah. He was very kind of clear about that. He's very clear about what he thinks about um, Dr. Greer. Is that that guy name, that dude? <laughs> um, you know, so he, it's not as if he doesn't mind talking um, about people that he disagrees with or has got some problem with. Do you know what I mean? But with Luella's, with um, uh, Lazar, Lou Elizondo doesn't do that, okay? He's actually using the same language that um, Lazar uses, and he's talking about the same technologically. He's talking about the same thing. So from a science point of view, he's talking about the same thing. If we go to l looking what how Putoff have been looking at, looking at what Eric Davis has been looking at, they've all been looking at this, like, um, gravitational propulsion system for years. So if you're looking for evidence of whether Lazar is talking about something le legitimately, well, you've got to scratch your head and wonder, well, like, you know, like th 25 years later, all of the guys that we take seriously, like Half Off and um, Eric Davis and Lou Elizondo, like n whether they take um, Lazar, uh, whether they uh, defend Lazar, or whether they uh, kind of distance themselves from Lazar, that's another thing. Because you have to wonder, well, you know, what is Eric Davis doing? I don't think it's about jealousy. I don't think it's about a kind of, um, you know, 
career jealousy. But I do wonder whether there are other reasons where they just think, well, let's just say, let's just kind of distance them. Anyway, we're going to go through a couple of these kind of big names and kind of hear from them, um, you know, like from the horse's mouth, as it were. But it's very interesting. Now, the first person we're going to listen to, actually, is I'm going to get the quote up from Eric Davis. Okay, so this is from UFO Joe, um, who contacted um, Eric Davis via some Facebook group, I think it was. So here you go. This is from a couple of years ago. Uh, 2018, and I'll do a link to um, Joe's, um, you know, website where all of this is listed. So, uh, quote, Dr. Eric Davis, Bob Lazar made up his entire cockamamie story about the UFO that he saw in a building inside Area 51. He was never exposed to any classified information, facilities or programs in his work area. So that's really interesting. And the article that Joe writes in a pure kind of Joe Mergier fashion is, you know, outstanding, you know, like uh, t- typically outstanding stuff. And there's lots and lots and lots of links. It's really useful for me to find it, you know, because it's full of links. And um, so that that's good. So, so that's Eric Davidson. You need to wonder, like, kind of what's going on there. I can't answer that, but all I am doing in this episode is giving you kind of an array of people uh, kind of in the UFO world, if you like, you know, high up people that I respect all of them, like, you know, unqualifiably, if that's a word. And um, and yet at the same time, you know, I do kind of um, come up with my own decision. I wonder what that decision is going to be. I'm not very good at... um, Suspense, am I? I need to work on the old suspense. But anyway, I'll put the link to um, Joe Merger's post in the episode notes. So that's good. And actually, while I'm on the subject of Joe Merger in that write-up, which is really good, it kind of goes on, like you know, the kind of there, there and back again with um, whether he thinks there's anything into well, whether the weight of evidence is that Lazar is telling the truth or or not telling the truth. And um, I'll tell you what, I won't tell you the ending of his thing. You just read it for yourself. But it's very—it's a fascinating, um, beautifully put together uh, piece there by Joe Merger. Now, let's actually listen now to uh, a great response from Lou Elizondo, very similar to what I was um, describing. But here you go. Now, this is one of the um, great interviews that he's given in, in the time. This is with Kurt Jamungal at... Uh, theories of everything. So this is um, uh, about f- halfway through, about 50 minutes in. Uh, the episode's in the link, uh, but listen to this. Here's something I heard when I was looking up some interviews with Bob Lazar, that the aliens refer to us as containers, or at least he read that he can't substantiate it. Have you heard this, and what do you make of it? Not a clue. And, and, I, and who was that you said? Bob? Was that Bob Lazar you said? Yeah, I, I, I can't speak for Mr. Lazar. I never met the man. Don't know. He was not part of the agent effort. Uh, and therefore, I can't I can't expound upon that. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. I have no idea. Between you and I, this is like a foray for me because my background is in physics and math. And I had no idea that people were so divisive when it comes to Bob Lazar and just individuals in this 
UFO community in general, that if you say you believe them, then you're ostracized, or if you say that you don't believe them, you're also ostracized by a certain sub subset. Do you, do you have views on Bob Lazar, whether you find him credible? I I never, I've never met him. I, I don't know his background. I don't know his story. I, I do know George Knapp. He's very credible. Uh, I, I, I don't know anything more than, than I guess, George Knapp may, may have helped break the story at one point. Um, but I, I don't know Mr. Lazar, and out of due respect for Mr. Lazar and his family and those his, his friends and colleagues, and those the community, um, I, I don't have a comment. You know, it's it's that's part of the problem. People people offer a lot of what they think instead of what they know, and so when you mention someone like that, uh, people automatically, you know, well, I think this, I think that. Well, okay, I respect that, but but the question is, what do we know? And right now, I don't know a whole lot about Mr. Bazaar, so it's it's not fair for me to really provide any any type of opinion one way or the other. There you go. A very fair summary of um, the situation there from Lou Elizondo. And also, like looking back at um, the research that I've done in the last couple of uh, days about this, I was quite struck with these, you know, highly serious senior people and their um, kind of fairness when it comes to this question of of Lazar. Um, you know, Dr. Eric Davis is um, a bit kind of known for being quite frank. But uh, listen to this. This is uh, Christopher Mellon. Listen to Christopher Mellon. And then that brings us to Lazar's depiction of how these things worked, that they somehow or another bend gravity, these things that he worked on, which is, the model that's on the desk there that's uh, supposedly a detailed model of what that thing looked like that he worked on the sport model i think they called it that's what he called it yeah. yeah when you watch him talk and you hear him give his description of his time working there and what he saw and what he thinks those things are what was your take on that i thought it was curious and interesting i mean i've been to area 51 i didn't see any flying saucers or any Thing like that. What did you see? <laughs> I saw uh, Defense Department uh, uh, experiments being performed and, and training activities and that sort of thing. Nothing that the taxpayer would uh, uh, object to. But, of course um, not. But it's a big range. There's a lot of stuff going on out there, and there's right. a lot of adjacent ranges. Uh, if you look at the Area map, actually. Area where he was. That's what he said, yeah. yeah. That's what um, he said. What I, I found his explanations curious. Um, yeah? How so? The the complexity of it uh, and the fact that he talked about Laurentium, for example, and then decades later it turns out that um, apparently there is a more stable form of that than that's element one fifteen. Uh, sounds right. I couldn't yeah. tell you for but sure. But it's called Laurentium. Laurentium. That sounds like something from Battlestar Galactica. You know, we need the, the this, Laurentium. All this stuff to power takes you ship. into that. Yeah. Right. Right. So uh, now I I'm a little skeptical about his claims. I have to say. Um, a friend of mine uh, claims to know the the gal who was his supervisor when he worked out there and knows what he was was actually doing and where he was located, um, and claims that uh, that he was the guy who checked radiation on badges. That's it. Yeah. And so uh, all the rest is fiction, according to that story. Um, and this is a person that you know. Yeah, maybe that person's full of shit. Maybe you know, that. You know I, I don't have the ground government. truth on this. Yeah, but it's but interesting. I, but I, he did falsify his educational records, and he's been involved in some other things, and uh, and it just doesn't. 
Are you talking about the what, MIT records? Yeah. Yeah. He explained that to me. He said that he was working on something for the government at, and they sent him to MIT to learn something. He, I, I can't say too much. I'll tell you off air because he told me not to talk about it. But it makes more sense when you hear his description of it that essentially it wasn't documented that he was studying there because what he was doing was really a terrible thing, a terrible experiment they were working on. When I explain it to you, maybe it'll make more sense. Okay. Maybe not, though. Maybe he's full of shit. Maybe he lied about that. What's interesting, though, is he's told the same exact story since the late 80s. And... He doesn't seem full of shit. Now, some people are really good at lying. And, uh, you know, I've been tricked before, and I'm sure you have too. There's some people that are just sociopaths. They're really good at... Yeah, they don't even, like, know they're lying. They're, yeah. like, convinced in their own head why they're spinning it. He's obviously, though, he's obviously very intelligent, and he obviously knows a lot about science. He knows a lot about mm-hmm. propulsion systems. And, and he really did work at uh, Los Alamos, which is interesting because he's actually on the employee roster. Mm-hmm. And they tried to say that he didn't. He knew people that were there. He knew the layout of the building. When he went there with George Knapp, they went through the building. He knew exactly where everything was. And he knew the people that worked there. So he really did work there, apparently, Mm -hmm. allegedly. His story, what's interesting to me is that, again, it's the same story over and over and over again. So there we go. Uh, Mellon finds it curious, not ruling it out, but also he's a bit... um skeptical because he uh, has heard that somebody that he knows knows somebody uh, that says that they were um, Bob Lazar's superior and um, you know he was um, the guy that checks that nobody's taking radiation out of the um, the place and that and um, Eric Davis apparently says a similar thing about um, that's what Lazar was was doing, so he didn't have the clearances. And now Hal Puthoff as well talks about um, the lack of clearances as well. But Hal Puthoff, you know, to give him his due, he does say that, you know, he can't rule it out because everything can be manipulated. And that's the point. If you're doing a kind of operation to um, try to remove somebody from, uh, you know, working at a top secret um site then of course you're going to have in place a way of doing that you know getting rid of their education getting rid of their um, security clearances getting rid of everything that shows that they were there do you know what I mean so it's not that surprising that it's quite difficult to come up with evidence for Bob Lazar to um, be working at S4 in Area 51 because it's the, the idea is that you're going to try to remove all of the evidence. It sounds like they've done a pretty good job, but not all of the evidence, as we'll come to a bit in a moment. But first of all, here is Hal Puthoff. What do you think about, you know, when we hear that they're unidentified aerial phenomena, that's one thing. But then when somebody like Bob Lazar comes out and says that he worked at a place called S4, which is a part of Area 51, on uh, alien reproduction vehicles, literally reverse engineering crashed UFOs, what are we supposed to make of things like that? Well, I mean, I'm skeptical. Mm-hmm. The yeah. degree behind the scenes, we can check on his clearances and so on. I, mean, I have reason to be skeptical, so I, I can't absolutely rule things out because everything can be manipulated. 
So there you go, how put off is sceptical. Um, and I suppose that, you know, if your uh, mission is to make sure that somebody disappears from the paperwork because they've come out of a top-secret installation and told the world about it, you probably are going to change the, um, you know, the fact that they had clearance. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So at least how put off has the wherewithal to realise that everything can be manipulated. But now let's go on to um, look at some of the uh, evidence in favour of Bob Lazar. And so um, we're going to start with George Knapp. And, I mean, the fact that George Knapp, like, you know, Lou Alexander said that George Knapp is credible and he's absolutely credible. The fact that George Knapp is the person that broke the story um, tells you something, okay? Because he's an investigative journalist. He knows how journalism works. You can't just stick anything on the television, you know, on television news and say, okay, let's just see how this goes. He had to have corroborative evidence, easy for me to say, corroborative evidence. Um, you know, people that he knew um, could back up um, uh, Bob Lazar <laughs> and um, you know before he kind of went anywhere with it yeah now one of the key bits of evidence for me is Mike Thigpen Mike Thigpen this is the story of Mike Thigpen uh, there was an agency called OFI Bob thought it was the FBI. I said, who did your background check, you know, when you were getting your security clearance? Ah, I think it was the FBI. It was a guy named Mike Thigpen. I called the FBI up. They said, we don't have any Mike, Mike Thigpen. We don't do background tests. Come to find out what it was is there was an agency called the OFI, Office of Federal Investigation. I had never heard about it before. But sure enough, turns out that's the agency that does background checks for people who work at the Nevada test site. And although Area 51 is not part of the Nevada test site officially, it's attached to it, and they do that work. And sure enough, they have an agent named Mike Thigpen. How did he know? How did Bob know that a guy named Mike Thigpen worked for an agency uh, that I had never even heard of before? Those facts were co confirmed. So let's just consider this for a minute. Um, George Knapp has got this interesting story. He wants to corroborate it. He asks um, Lazar for, you know, names that he can chase up some names to see if the story uh, sticks. And, you know, Lazar gives him the name Mike Thigpen. T-H-I-G-P-E-N. Not exactly a common name. And lo and behold, George Knapp does manage to track down Mike Thigpen, who, off the record, does say, yes, that was my job. And not only is it my job, but I remember... George, uh, Bobby Lazar. I remember Bob Lazar. And so, you know, the idea that this is, um, like Chris Mellon says, oh, yeah, well, you know, um, I've heard that he used to hang around a bar. Do me a favour. Like, you know, George Knapp isn't going to take his career and throw it in the bin because some old sea dog comes along and says, oh, I've heard a story in a bar. Do you know what I mean? Come on, Mellon. Get your melon on, Mellon man. So Thigpen is a, you know, that is a key part of the puzzle for me. So oh, the other possibility, by the way, is that Bob Lazar is a fantastic, um, you know, kind of uh, world-class 
uh, remote viewer. Um, so, you know, I don't think he is a good remote viewer. I think that the Thigpen thing is a key part of the evidence uh, in his favour that he actually did work there. Now, of course, you could say, oh, well, hold on a minute, if it does clearance, then he could have worked anywhere. He could have been the one that brushes the, um, you know, the kind of apron at the end of the day. And people may may think, OK, well, OK, fair enough. It's still open. Let's keep listening. It was a strange time to live through. Break-ins at Bob's house. They would break into his house, leave all the doors and windows open, and write stuff on his blackboard or move things around. Now, there was a time when he and a friend, he was getting really nervous because strange things were happening in his life. They go to a gym to work out, and Bob was started carrying a gun. Uh, somebody had taken a shot at him. He had this gun in the glove box, locks the car, goes into the gym, comes back out an hour and a half later. The cars to the door are open. The windows are rolled down. The glove box is open. The gun is laying there on the seat. It's like somebody wanted him to know he was under surveillance. I would, He would call me in the middle of the night, and I'd go over to his house rushing over there, and he's peeking out the window. And I know this will make him sound paranoid, peeking out the window holding an Uzi because um, he thought people were messing with him. They were messing with him. I mean, he th they threatened to kill him. They threatened to make him disappear. They were following us around wherever, everywhere we went, into bars, to work. Uh, I had a series of uh, phone calls at the station. This is really ticks me off. People who called up offering to give me additional information about Area 51. And I'll get into some of those specifics in a minute. Six people who had called to offer me additional information uh, and said, yeah, agreed to be interviewed, were visited one right after another. Uh, there was a guy who was a tax preparer. His name is Roy Byram. He did tax returns for offices, officers at Nellis Air Force Base, and he got to know him pretty well. And they were on an out-of-town trip uh, when they were sitting around drinking some beers, and these guys told them about Area 51, flying saucers, S-4, the whole story as told by Bob. He agrees to tell me that story on the phone. The very next day, he gets visited. These two guys who said they're from the Secret Service, they said, we hear you've been issuing threats against the life of the president, and we can tell you that uh, if you're talking to the wrong people and saying the wrong things, you can go to prison. Well, he saw that as a threat because of him talking to me. There was a lady who works in the Clark County court system. She had been a stenographer for a company called Holmes & Narver. It's a defense contractor. She sat in on meetings at which she took dictation. Air Force guys, CIA, and her boss, these contractors, when they talked about Roswell and the Roswell wreckage and some of that material going to Area 51. She said after the meeting, they would not only take all her notes, they would take the ribbon out of the typewriter so that nobody could reconstruct what she had written. And so she was, she told this story to a cop a police officer who I know, and he offered to make an introduction. So I called this lady up. I said, let's get together. I'll hide your identity. Don't worry, I won't get you in trouble. She agreed to tell me this story. Very next day, she gets a knock on the door, and these two guys show up. They said, we're from Holmes and Narvi. You do know that you're still under a security uh, clearance. You're still under security restrictions. You can't talk to anybody. She goes, what are you talking about? They go, we know that you and your daughter, your daughter lives in L.A., you live in Las Vegas, and the two of you travel back and forth a lot. You know, there's a lot of desert out there. Something bad could happen if you were to say the wrong thing. They were threatening her daughter's life. She was scared to death. 
I tried to get a hold of her 10 years and then 20 years after that, that our first conversation. She still wouldn't talk to me. She was scared. I had a guy who was a, an electrical engineer who had worked at KLAS-TV. And he, before working there, he had been at Area 51. And he said he walked into a, a big hangar, and there under a tarp was something that looked like a flying saucer. Well, he was living in Seattle at the time that he told me this story. And so I, I, I contacted him. I said, look, we're working on a series about UFOs. Would you give me an interview? Would you do this on camera? I'll black out your face. He goes, yeah, sure. Next morning, I mean, the very next day, there's two guys sitting in a car, uh, clean military uh, haircuts, talking into a radio, sitting out in front of his house, and they followed him to work. And when he got out of work, they're sitting there and talking on the radio, and they followed him home. He was scared. He knew they were trying to intimidate him, and he wouldn't talk to me. What that told me, six people in a row, boom, 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 same thing, is that they were listening to my phone. And that really ticked me off, that they would monitor back there before we had the NSA listening to everybody's phones, uh, that they were listening to my phone. And it really ticked me off. But it was real. I had so many people. Uh, if, if this story was just about Bob Lazar, we would never have done it. But I had more than two dozen people who had worked at Area 51, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, who told me bits and pieces of the same story. I had the guy who was a golf pro at Nellis Air Force Base who knew all these uh, all these uh, high-ranking officers who told me the same story about Roswell wreckage going to Area 51 and saucers being tested. And uh, he told me that story. He's another one who got a visit. Uh, there was a guy who, his name is Glenn Pace. And back in the days of above-ground nuclear testing in Nevada, the most nuked place in the world, he was, it was his job as a spotter. He was one of the only people on Nevada test site that was allowed to use binoculars. So he'd be out there when they would be planning these atomic tests. He'd be in a building, sometimes for days at a time, waiting for the test to take place. And he had these binoculars. He was at a place called Area 15, which looks right over into Area 51. And he said they used to watch these, what looked like flying saucers over Papoose Dry Lake all the time. His boss was an, a German physicist, one of the Nazi scientists who came over under Operation Paperclip named Otto Krauss, who told him about alien technology being tested out there. Uh, I had a guy named Howard Cannon. He was a United States senator from Nevada. He was a man who practically built Area 51 because he would get all the secret uh, appropriations, the money that went into building it. He was like the father of Nellis Air Force Base. He's a retired brigadier general uh, from the Air Force, a, a, a decorated war hero. He was very good friends with the men who built Area 51, um, the guys from the Skunk Works, Lockheed. When Howard Cannon lost his last election, they gave him, as a going-away present, the ability to fly in the SR-71. There's only 30 people in the world that are 40 people in the world have ever been in one, and he got to fly in it. That's how close he was to these guys. Howard's son, Alan, is a friend of ours, had uh, had these conversations with his dad about UFOs. Howard had never, the senator had never spoken about it publicly, but he finally agreed through his son to tell me the story about Area 51. And I went over and interviewed him, the last interview before he died, and he came this close to spilling it all. His best friend in the Senate was Barry Goldwater. I don't know if you remember that name, but Goldwater had run for president. Goldwater had tried to get into Wright-Patterson, the stories about the Blue Room, and he'd been told, no, you can't get in and you can't ask about it. Never ask again. Well, Howard Cannon had the same experience. He told me that story before he died. He went right up to the edge of saying there's flying saucers at Area 51. And then he said this, what would be the point of telling that? 
They would deny it. They'd call it a lie. You're never going to get to see that technology. They're never going to let it out. So what would be the point? Howard Cannon is a man that I, I believe. One other source I'll tell you about, and then we'll move on. It's a guy I, whose name I can't give you, but there was a book by a lady named Annie Jacobson uh, about Area 51, and it's a tremendous book about the history of all those those secret planes. Annie Jacobson, at the end of her book, though, has a capper where she says um, she talked to this old guy who said that there were flying saucers out there, but they're not alien flying saucers. They'd been built by the Nazis, captured by the Russians, and what crashed at Roswell was a one of these Russian Nazi uh, technology that the the aliens were not aliens. They were uh, refugees from a concentration camp who just looked like aliens. It's a ridiculous story, but I knew immediately that the source of it was a guy that I had stalked. I stalked him literally for three years because I knew he was in a position to know. He had worked at Area 51 in a management capacity, and finally I got him to open up. He invited me to his house. He said, you want to talk about uh, atomic bombs and testing? And he's going through his scrapbooks, and I'm looking at these pictures of bombs and everything. And he goes, he stops, closes the book. He goes, that's not what you're here to talk about, is it? I said, no, not really. So I know what you're here for. And then he started telling me a story about saucers, aliens. This is a guy who, he's not Bob Lazar. His credentials are not uh, questionable. He was in the position to know, and he laid the story out for me. Somewhere along the line, though, he changed it. And by the time Annie Jacobson uh, got a hold of him, it was not aliens, which, by the way, he told me that uh, the alien looked like Ross Perot, who was a a billionaire businessman, a little skinny guy with great big ears. Um, Anyway, uh, along the way, there are some very real uh, people who had told me bits and pieces of the story. It's not just Bob. Let's play one of them. This guy named Jim Goodall uh, wrote books about stealth technology. He was a friend of John Lear. Did you ever get any information about a facility at Papoose, like the one he described? I have a, uh, a friend of mine. He's a, he's a retired uh, senior master sergeant. He was early on in the F-117 program. And they had full, they, their badge, area uh, restricted area badge, he can go anywhere in the Nevada test site, up to and including Area 51. So they had a Humvee. And they drove around the, the uh, was it Groom Range? Yeah. yeah, Groom Range. And they're on Papoose Lake. There isn't, there, isn't, there isn't anybody around. And all of a sudden, they're surrounded by guys in black uh, uniforms, wanting to, with their hands on their weapons, wanting to know who they were, what are you doing here? And my buddy said, we're just, we have some, some downtime, we're just exploring the area. He said, you turn around and you leave and don't come back. They just kind of popped up out of nowhere? He didn't know where they came from. He didn't see any vehicles. All of a sudden, they were there. And he left. There was three or four guys with him. They left. What do you make of that? That there might be something at Papoose, or was, or... Well, according to Bob, that's where, that's where the, uh, the nine hangarettes are, in the, it, you know, camouflage on the side of the mountain. So there we see that Nat did all of the things that you expect a journalist to do, yeah? He went out and he searched for other, um, you know, kind of uh, witnesses or whatever, people that worked at Area 51 that could back it up. And indeed, people came forward to him after um, Lazar was interviewed by Nat on the air and said, oh, yeah, yeah, I work there. I know this. This backs up. This backs up. And as you hear, they were all scared away. 
over two dozen. Okay, he goes into quite a lot of detail about six of them, gives names and all the rest of it. But over two dozen, I mean, that's not no one, you know. So you got to think like there's something in this. Now, there's another piece of evidence that I haven't spoken about yet, which is unbelievable in terms of, uh, you know, of the moment. Uh, if you're looking around, is there anything, any connection between Bob Lazar and these uh, test UFO flights. Well, he filmed them. He told his friends that it was going to happen. He had the flight manifest, like the when they were, not the manifest, the flight schedule, when they were going to do the test flights. It was going to be Wednesday evenings, apparently, because that's the time when the traffic is uh, the quietest. And so the chances of being overseen by, you know, a kind of passing truck or whatever, like miles and miles away, is uh, is kind of reduced. And so he told uh, three buddies of his, or two buddies, and his wife. I suppose his wife was a buddy. And um, they all kind of packed up in the Jeep or whatever and went up the mountain. And at that point, the mountain, as will be, you'll hear this in the audio in a minute, it was uh, public land. So it was perfectly legal for them to be there. And then afterwards, I don't exactly know when, but afterwards, a couple of years afterwards, the uh, just overnight, the um, military commandeered the mountains that uh, Knapp used to kind of oversee the um, uh, kind of UFOs being flown by the government. It was way, way, way in the uh, distance, but there is video of this, okay? And I've got it in the episode description. So you're going to hear the audio of two videos. Both of the videos are in the episode description. And they're definitely worth seeing because this is before he was arrested. OK, the end of this basically is that as part of the deal of working there, he worked there for about six months. You had your phones tapped and they would monitor the um, home life of all of the people that were working on this secret project in S4. Probably like a wide variety of people throughout Area 51 as well. Yeah, but part of the deal was that they wanted you to be kind of psychologically kind of on it and, you know, kind of not stressed by things at home. And they found when they were monitoring the um, recordings that his wife was having an affair with a pilot. And they then started to get a bit kind of edgy. And then he started to not getting the calls um, to go to work. And then he thought, okay, like what's going on here then? So he had, uh, you know, told a couple of friends, he thought, okay, let's just, uh, you know, see if my mates can see the uh, action. And so uh, they did. And they filmed it at the same time. And then on the third occasion, so he did it twice. On the third occasion, the third Wednesday, they got arrested. And at that point, of course, obviously, he never returned to um, S4. And his boss said, have you any idea what we're going to do to you now? And unfortunately, I mean, I'll get to the clip in a minute, but, um, you know, years later, like 27 years later, or whatever it is, um, I think that, you know, certainly in 2014, 2015 time, um, Bob Lazar was regretting the whole thing, you know. Uh, I don't know how he feels about it now, but he certainly was regretting the whole thing in terms of, you know, kind of speaking out 
So it certainly has worked in terms of also kind of putting a lid on it. You know what I mean? There weren't people that were going to follow him. Even people that like Mike Thigpen was very close to speaking to Jeremy Corbell, like coming out and speaking, um, you know, on camera in Corbell's film. Uh, Corbell says that to Joe Rogan on that interview. And, but he didn't, you know, it really worked. The kind of pressure that Lazar has been under and the kind of controversy around this story has really worked in terms of, um, you know, muddying the water for anyone else who wants to kind of blow the whistle on this. Now, also, I'll get to the thing in a minute, but also when we're on this, it's basically, it is not controversial to say the United States government has hidden um, the truth about UFOs. Like, we know that. we It's documented. We know that there are other kind of black operation programs, like off-the-books programs happening. We know that. Like, anybody that follows like UFOs, even slightly closely, knows that that's not a, a kind of controversial thing to say. Do you know what I mean? So is it really that surprising that at uh, Area 51... There's an area where they're flying these things, where in the late 80s they were flying these things. Well, we've got the video to prove it. And you can say, oh, well, you can't see much in the video. But we know when the video was taken. We know that it's, uh, you know, the people that were in there were the people in what's his name's life at the moment. We know that they were all interviewed by George Knapp independently. Um, and they all backed up. Yeah, it is exactly how it's seen in the video. Like, you know, we have video of this, okay? So here's the audio from two of the videos. When he reached what felt like his bursting point, he took Huff and a few others to the edge of the Groom Mountains to see the flights for themselves. A total of five witnesses on two consecutive weeks managed to dodge security patrols long enough to see the strange glowing object lift above the mountains. Uh, it came up above the same mountain, it moved around, it did a step move, it actually went up in the air like this and hovered, then dropped way down, then it just floated around and cruised around, and then it started coming up the mountain range. This home videotape was recorded during one of the trips to the Groom Mountains. Okay. Good luck. No, what, did you see that move it did? No, I didn't. It, it went like I a kept doing Whoa! Wow, how bright it's getting! Look at it now. That's right enough for me to get the sun of a Here, hold on right here. Are you, are you there? No. It is bright right now. Admittedly, the tape proves very little by itself because with the distance and darkness, there are no reference points other than the alleged flying disc. But Lazar's information about the time and location of the test flights proved correct, not once, but twice. That, according to our off-camera interviews with each of the other witnesses. This is John Lear, and today is March 22nd, 1989. We're standing just about uh, eight miles due east of Groom Lake, Nevada, the super government uh, secret test site. And just a few minutes ago, we saw one of the government uh, uh, extraterrestrial UFOs fly over there. Uh, we all watched it for about uh, <clears throat> seven or eight minutes. Right here I have my Celestron scope. Uh, it's eight uh, inches. And I had uh, uh, had it focused in for about 15 seconds and saw for myself that in fact it was a disc. 
<clears throat> we're going to uh, uh, stay here for another couple hours here to see if we can show you folks uh, an actual uh, extraterrestrial flying saucer being uh, flown by the government. So if you just stand by, and uh, we'll be looking over that mountain, which is where they are. They also come over here, which is over at Bald Mountain. There's some lights over there, which you can't see, but there are a number of trucks. We don't know whether they're looking down here or <clears throat> what they're doing up there, but we managed to get in here. Uh, we're standing on public land. It's uh, completely legal where we are. And if you'd like to uh, come here later in the show, we'll tell you exactly how to get here. Well, you can mention who's with you, John. Uh, we have Bob Lazar. And we have um, Jackie uh, Lazar, Bob's wife, and we have Gene Huff. And this mission was organized tonight uh, by Bob Lazar, who is a, uh, a, um, a theoretical physicist who works at Groom Light. <laughs> <laughs> and is also a dead man at this point. <laughs> We're having this on film that he wrote. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm happy. You want your name on there that you're a physicist. Yeah. So what kind of a person is Bob Lazar? What kind of a person, you know, gets this job or certainly claims he gets this job? He sticks around for about six months and then he does a foolish thing that he probably knew that there was a very good chance that he was going to get caught. Maybe he wanted to get caught because he realized that he was on his way out anyway. Um, but nevertheless, what kind of person is this? The kind of person that puts a jet engine on a car? Well, um, one person that knows is Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow, the billionaire um, person that's put in more of his private money than anyone else in the history of the planet in looking at researching the paranormal and researching UFOs. Um, Robert Bigelow has known George Knapp for a long time. And here is Bigelow's thoughts. Uh, 1989, Bob Lazar pop pops onto the scene. And uh, and you wanted to meet him. You did meet him. Yeah. We hung out. We we would go out <clears> and, yeah. and just uh, BS yeah. for hours. We'd go yeah. up to Rachel, go out in the desert. Right. Um, a lot has been written about you and Bob, your relationship. You went into business for a while. How you've sort of, uh, you find him to be a fraud. He made it all up. You parted ways. It was acrimonious. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? <clears throat> I, never, I never viewed... Uh... Uh, Bob as as being a fraud uh, as to you know Area 51 and all of that. I spent quite a bit of I spent a, a certain amount of time in conversations with him. We put a a little bitty uh, business together and uh, tried to do something for about four months uh, in that business. And so um, there I had opportunities to test him, like you would. Like anybody would, you know, and and see if he repeated the same thing and 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 stuck to his stories and and or what kinds of things could I find that were not legitimate, and <clears throat> I didn't find much. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't say it was zero, but I didn't find much that I could say. Oh no, this guy is 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 absolutely off. Uh, uh, you know, in 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 what he's telling me is is the truth and uh so i wouldn't say that that um that he had not experienced uh, a lot of the things he's, he claims that he has you think he did i think the odds i would i would look at it in terms of odds this is las vegas right yeah. so i would say the odds are bob lazar has for the most part on everything he has said it has been telling the truth those are the odds 
And I would say, if you're betting against that, you're betting against substantial odds. And that the chances are you're going to lose. If you, if you think that he's been lying, the chances are you're going to lose. There's a, also the allegation about Element 115. Do you think Element 115 exist, existed and that he had a piece of it at one point? And did he try to fool you with the 115 and the aerogel? I discovered um, that aerogel uh, was not what it purported, what he, I guess what he was saying it was, and it was, it was accidentally, I accidentally uh, came across the fact that this, this beautiful, smoky, very lightweight kind of crystal. Weird, yeah. Uh, was, was aerogel, totally by accident. I happened to be going through a magazine. And I thought, oh my God, I saw a picture of this material in the magazine and I pursued it and found out it was alcohol-based, it was aerogel, it was invented in the 1930s and it could be used as an insulative kind of material. It was five uh, times the weight of air and it was beautiful. It looked like a kind of a gem. Gee, you'd want to put it on a, you know, a woman's finger because it looked so beautiful as a big ring. Um, that was the only thing that I, that I really felt... Um, that of, of, of a physical piece of something. So I have no opinion about the uh, element 115. I, I think um, um, the, Bob was intriguing because he knew so much. He's a smart guy. He, he's, he's no dummy. He's a smart man. He's a smart guy um, and very creative. And uh, so, again, I, I say that... Um, the preponderance of evidence to me is in his favor, that he's, he's, he's by and large legitimate. He had told me that that aerogel arrived with the 115. It was like packing material, and he didn't know what it was. But later, I guess, he developed a story that he told you about what he thought it was. But he didn't decide to say it was 115. Well, it doesn't mean that he uh, uh, would necessarily know what the original custody of the material was, Right. right? Just because it's associated with something doesn't mean that this bottle of water, which stands next to something else peculiar, right. uh, they're both connected. You know, so it means he may have uh, leapt to that assumption that the aerogel, because it was in association physically nearby or whatever with the 115, was somehow connected, and he just didn't know what it was. You know, That's so what I, told I me. would give him the benefit of the doubt on that, and because and, I don't have anything else that is more concrete, I'd rather not say, well, somebody, uh, you know, it, that he, he, he knew differently. One of the tests you did was to see if he was motivated by money. And that, what you've told me is that you yeah. didn't think he was. I, I, I tempted him. I, I, you know, I, I, in different ways, I can remember uh, uh, in a conversation that we had, and he probably isn't even aware uh, that I did that. But I, I offered him money. <clears throat> if, uh, I forget the circumstances now, but uh, it didn't tempt him at all. And, I, and so I thought, well, either he's awful goddamn peculiar, you know, or there's something legitimate going on here. You went into business to build a certain device. He set him up in a small lab to see how he did, and then you split. After a while, you split up. Yeah. A lot of stories told about that. Yeah. What's the bottom line for you? <clears throat> I had a gal working for me that uh, would check up on him, and uh, and I was out of town at the time, and... Uh, she says, and so I said, okay, uh, what's, what's going on in the lab? And she said, well, I'm really sorry to tell you, it's being used as a, as a little warehouse for, for furniture. 
you know, and I thought, oh, geez, okay, that's, I, I can see, I see the signs now, okay, that, that's the end of it. That he just wasn't doing what he said he would do. You know? Correct, yeah. correct. So well, that was, sounds very Bob-like, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a, it was a storehouse, uh, you know, warehouse for him, because he had this furniture and no place to put it, I guess. Now, one of the things I've got in the episode description is the, uh, an interview that George Knapp gave to ExoPolitics Denmark. It's a really good interview, and it goes alongside something else in the episode description, which is a lecture that Knapp gave in Copenhagen. This was about, I think it was 2015, maybe 2014. And um, that lecture's like full of amazing stuff, and I'm using a bit of the audio in this show, but the whole thing is absolutely you know, dynamite lectures, beautiful stuff. Now, um, in the interview, though, Knapp speaks about the rebel nature of Lazar and speaks about maybe he's exactly the kind of person that's perfect because if it all goes wrong and if he gets, you know, if he leaves the program, then he's very, very easy to discredit. So this is a really interesting theory that there's something about his flaws, um, Lazar's flaws, which actually mean that he's perfect for the job. Could it, could it be that it actually that Bob Lazar was used to to plant actively a story into the public imagination about this? Uh, I mean, that's also yeah. a theory. Is yeah, that a possibility? Absolutely. And I've talked to Bob about that many times over the years. In the beginning, it was probably uh, kind of sensitive because you know he's got his life on the line. His life was in danger at some point, and he doesn't like to accept the idea that he was used as a pawn. Over the years, he's opened up to that possibility, and we both agree it's possible at some level. But as I said to you before, if the plan was, let's use Bob as a pawn to distract attention from something else that's going on at Area 51, then that plan is a miserable failure. Because as a result of Bob telling the story about the saucers, all those people came from all over the world. They're still going on out there. So if you wanted to fly a secret test aircraft of some sort, it's hard to do it because so much attention is focused. Every single day, there are people out there with cameras and binoculars looking in the sky to see what's going on. Because of Bob's story, every news organization in the world has been out there asking questions. Congressional investigators saying, hey, what's going on out here? How are you spending our money? Uh, you know, this is a lot of unwanted attention. And I can tell you, they're not happy about it because they've told me. You know, we, we used to be followed around. These guys would follow us around, go to bars and restaurants. They'd, they'd follow all of us who were involved in, in telling that story. And a few of those guys, years later, after they got out of uh, working for that, those contractors, told us that that was their job. I would run into them in bars, and they told me, I was following you around. You know, they were, they were uh, checking us out, uh, putting us under, under scrutiny. And that also is another topic that's a sore spot with us. But, you know, if the plan was to uh, distract attention away from something else out there, it was a terrible, terrible failure. Uh, Bob accepts the idea that maybe he was used to some extent, and I have too, uh, that maybe someone, some faction inside the government, inside the Navy, wanted to see, let's run it up the flagpole and see if the public freaks out. If they knew that we had alien technology from somewhere else, how would the public react? And they picked a guy who could be discredited later. I mean, you look at him, he's not the first person you would think would be picked into the most secret program in the world. He's a smart guy, uh, and he and he thinks unconventionally. So in one sense, he might be very qualified to come in with a fresh point of view 
uh, because as Bob said, the technology had been out there for a while and they weren't making progress at all. When he came in and he gave them a fresh view and helped them gain a better understanding of what they had. Um, but he was not the top guy. He didn't have a PhD. He never claimed that. So why was he chosen? Well, I think he might have been chosen because he's a guy who could be discredited earlier. You let him tell that story and then you pull the rug out from under him. You know, because he, look, you look at him, you know, his, ha- his house, he would fly a pirate flag over his house. Uh, he raced jet cars, have these gigantic jet cars in his, in his front yard. He liked hookers, prostitutes. Uh, he liked machine guns. He's a very unconventional guy, someone who, you gotta figure, I wouldn't give him a security clearance. Because he, you know, you never know when he's gonna go off the deep end, do something crazy. He's rebellious by nature. He doesn't like authority, doesn't like taking orders. So you think he was given the security clearance in the first place because he was like that? I do. I do think. In that sense, he might have been the most qualified person in the world for that job. He's smart, he's technically capable, he knows science, but he's a guy who could be destroyed in the in, in an in- instant if you needed to pull the rug out from under him. So that's a really interesting way of viewing the the Tsar story, if you like. And um, and in many ways it's worked, you know, because Lozar is a controversial figure. But I think, as you see, if you line up everything, all of the facts, and of course this isn't comprehensive, you know, and it's certainly not exhaustive either. I am very fully aware that I haven't mentioned the kind of briefings that he um, read in S4, um, and partly because he doesn't really make much of it uh, himself, he says, you know, there may have been, I saw them as tests at the time, maybe like something to do with the memory test or testing whether I was kind of like, you know, crazy. And so, you know, it's difficult to kind of verify any of that stuff. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, what, what can we, what can we make of those briefings? We don't actually know if it was disinformation or if it was partly true or, you know, whatever it. So I'm not really that, uh, concerned about speaking in depth about the briefings, which are basically I've mentioned it now, but basically it was a bunch of briefings, a bunch of briefings that he read, and he the the key thing was that uh, they said that um, there's some kind of link to maybe like not all of the craft, but some of the craft came from some binary um, planet system called Zeta Articulate or something. <laughs> And there was a alien autopsy uh, report as well in there. So, you know, I mean, I'm not sure about any of that. The implications of a working, um, you know, anti-gravity uh, propulsion system means that you can start playing around with time and space. And here, this is a really fascinating, um, really fascinating bit of audio I'm going to play from that George Knapp um, lecture. So you remember he had one guy that he was talking about whose um, whose mate went out in the Jeep. He had, like, you know, kind of could go anywhere. And uh, there were no vehicles around, but suddenly all these dudes, I think it was four, he said, four dudes popped up with guns and um, kind of freaked them out of it because there were no vehicles. They, these people just appeared from nowhere. So this adds to that. This is the story. It's a brilliant story. And if you look into it, it's a fascinating guy. And he actually phoned up Bart Bell once, but I can't find the audio, unfortunately. This is the, his name is Jerry Friedman. This is a fascinating um, adventure that he had. 
I'll give you one other thing about uh, S4 and Papoose. There was a guy named Jerry Friedman. He's an archaeologist. And you wouldn't think an archaeologist has anything to do with uh, flying saucers. Jerry Friedman was studying the path of the 49ers. That was the, there was a gold rush of 1849 when thousands of people uh, fled west to try to uh, strike it rich. And a lot of them in covered wagons and settlers, and they, they uh, had a certain paths that they followed. And Jerry Freeman was trying to reconstruct the path that the 49ers had taken, and he thought that they had gone right straight across the Nevada test site and, in fact, had been at Papoose Lake. So what he did was, very bold of him, he infiltrated the test site from going west to east and walked all the way across it, dodged security patrols. He would walk... Uh, in the nighttime and then hide during the day and he made it all the way across. Let's show the Freeman stuff. He made it all the way across the test site uh, to Papoose Lake. These are pictures that he had set up with an automatic camera. That's Papoose behind him. That's the place where Bob Lazard said he worked. So Freeman, again, uh, walking at night and uh, and uh, hiding in the day, gets all the way to Papoose. He finds the evidence he's looking for. The 49ers had carved some, something into the rocks there. But as he's sitting out there at night, um, right at Papoose, uh, it's a sad story, by the way, he died, a doorway opens up. He said he's sitting there, and a doorway of light opens up in the middle of the sky, and things come out, people come out, objects come out, and then it closed up again. Now, he's not a flying saucer guy. Uh, he walked all the way across the, across the test site, not realizing that that land is still contaminated with all kinds of uh, nuclear fallout. And he died of cancer two years after uh, his, his journey. But anyway, gave a little piece that sort of goes along with what Jim Goodall just said about people coming out of nowhere. Uh, remember, Papoose Lake, where Lazar said uh, there's this facility built in the side of the mountain, uh, does, you know, there is nothing there officially. So is it possible, do you think, that Papoose Lake is being used not only as a place to, um, you know, kind of look after craft and try to reverse engineer craft and, um, you know, do test flights with craft, but also as a place to experiment with the things that a working anti-gravity uh, propulsion system opens up, time and space? like bending and playing with and manipulating time and space. If you could do that, then of course it's possible to do anything. It's possible to open up a shaft of light in the sky and lots of people and equipment come out of it, you know. Anything is possible. It's possible to appear instantaneously in front of people if you are um, manipulating time and space. So it's extraordinary to think about, but and of course it's pure speculation, but what are the um, implications if Bob Lazar is right? What are the implications of it? Not only in terms of, you know, oh my God, the US government have craft that they're working on. What are the implications? And it comes back to what um, Ben from Skunkworks says. I like to call him Ben from Skunkworks says, you know, we have the ability to take E.T. home. Now, you know, are we ever going to know that? Probably not. There's like too much uh, at stake kind of societally, I'd say, to um, for any of that to come out, let alone just kind of, you know, in terms of the money invested in the uh, activities so far. I mean, it's top secret for a reason. Do you know what I mean? There's a good chance that 
the last couple of presidents haven't had a sniffer of it, so we're not going to get much of, of this. So all you can do with a, a story like um, Bob Lazar is, um, you know, rake up the evidence as you see it and take a position. And you'll be under no surprise at all, with no illusions uh, to this the bombshell that I think there's something in it. <laughs> so uh, there's a preponderance, to use Robert Bigelow's words, preponderance of evidence, a preponderance of evidence to show that I would say that Bob Lazar worked there. Maybe not everything he said consistently through the years is like absolutely 100% cast iron true, but the vast majority of it is. And, you know, I think there's something going on. I mean, if you look at the kind of, you know, it's not that surprising, really, if you think about it. There's a good chance that, you know, crashes happen, that there's a possibility that craft are gifted to us. You know, that's a possibility that's spoken about in UFO circles. And so the idea that they're all kind of, you know, put together in a secure site, certainly in terms of the buddy system, as he describes it, which basically like, you know, Noel Alexander would call it stovepiping. This idea that uh, it's incredibly strict. You're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to collaborate with anybody. It doesn't make sense from a science point of view, but it is if you're really paranoid about secrecy and about security. That is how you would do this project. And it looks like, according to um, Jerry Friedman, or uh, at least, it looks like they might be getting somewhere in terms of manipulating this stuff. So it's a fascinating area, and um, we're going to go into the archive now. But um, that is Bob Lazar. So the archive this week, we're going to be looking at uh, Joe Mergia's latest YouTube broadcast, which was only put up yesterday, and it's definitely worth watching. It's a brilliant um, piece of work whereby he talks about um, this Yahoo News article that was put up a couple of days ago, which is called Nurses are Sharing the Last Words People Have Said on Their Deathbed, and they range from witty to tragic to profound and Joe talks about uh, one of those, I think it's number five in this long list of um, of accounts. And it's this extraordinary thing. It's quite common in, you know, near-death experience research whereby, um, you know, the person that's dying says the name of somebody that's already uh, died. Okay, so in this case, this old dude talks about this person called Eileen. And he says, uh, Irene, I'm coming, <laughs> something like that. Um, oh, he does say, I'm coming. Yeah, I'm coming, Irene. And then he passed away. Now, the interesting thing is what, what, what Joe says about it. So um, let's go to Joe. I had a patient whose memory had been fading for years. It's weird. Right before a patient dies, like I said, sometimes they'll suddenly appear to be doing a lot better. This is really weird. Why does that happen? It happens so many times if you read stories about people who are dying. Totally out of it. Next thing you know, it's like, oh, they're fine. They're going to get better. People who don't know about that think they're getting better. And then they pass away really soon after. Anyway, he thought I was his late wife. 
I played along and just listened to him while he recalled his engagement, his wedding, his first childbirth, and a few other memories. At one point he says, oh, Irene, there you are. Sorry, uh, you know my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. Well, thank you for listening to an old man tell his stories. I hope you have great stories to tell one day too. I'm coming, Irene. Then he passed. You hear people talking about their dead relatives all the time. There's so many stories about people right before they die, they start seeing friends and relatives at their bedside. Is it really their friends and relatives? I don't know. I don't know. Later on, there's a, there's one, there's a, there's a story you'll see where I start. And I, I've said this before when remote viewer Joe McMonagle had a remote viewing session of a UFO event and his father popped into the event and McMonagle said, you're not my father because the guy was acting different than his father had acted when he was alive. His father was dead. So this being was kind of like, if you believe the story, take it as face, take it at face value. This being was pretending to be his father and McMonagle wanted, McMonagle wouldn't have it. He's basically like, you're not my dad. And the thing just popped out. So I've brought this up before in close encounter cases where people during the day, they'll have an encounter with their dead relative. And then at night they'll have a close encounter case. So was that really their dead relative they experienced or, you know, encountered during the day? It's, it's impossible to know that. Just like in, in, in mediumship, even in physical mediumship where the, the person allegedly comes into the room physically, um, is that really your dead loved one? There's no way to know. Just because they look like your dead re relative and they tell you details about your life, there's no way to prove that's who it is. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. And I know people are like, no, I felt it. I had the experience. I felt the love. Maybe, maybe that's exactly what it is, but it's impossible to prove that. And that, I know that's cynical, but that's how I am with that kind of evidence. So that's really fascinating stuff, isn't it? Because if you think about the implications of that, uh, especially what he said, what he said about Joe McMonagle, McMonagle, um, you know, that it, that's quite profound because you can understand kind of psychologically why uh, a, a being that is not your mother, as an example, or your father or whatever, or somebody that's kind of passed before you, turns up but pretends to be that person, you know? You could see why that's kind of incredibly emotionally powerful to drag the person from this life to another realm and then, you know, it kind of opens up into a whole world of speculation about, you know, what's going on there then? You know, why are they doing that? Is it just a kind of like... Uh, basic uh, disguise, if you like, that guides do in order to kind of get us over the threshold. Maybe it only happens to people where they feel, and when I say people, I don't mean, you know, kind of beings, like biological beings anymore, but the soul, whatever you want to call it, that kind of innate thing that makes you you, the thing that continues, yeah? Maybe at some stage, some kind of overseeing force realizes that people need a little bit of encouragement and they think, all right, come on then, put on the Nan costume. <laughs> Pretend to be that guy's Nan. And then you put on the, as the kind of, you know, teaching uh, in being, 
Because, you know, like in the world of NDEs, episode three, I think, or episode two, incredibly popular episode of um, Paranormal Blip, if you haven't heard it, one of the most successful episodes ever, consistently in the top five, what happens after we die? We've got the answers, pal. I recorded that. It was one of my first episodes. But anyway, consistently in that, you've got these tales of, you know, and then, uh, you know, everyone knows about it. You know, you go through the tunnel and then you see your uncle. And he's like, oh, I get emotional just thinking about it. But anyway, it might be that it's not my uncle at all, but it's some poxy being pretending to be my uncle. Unbelievable. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Listen, you take care of yourselves. Hopefully I'll do another episode very soon within the week. Um, So, you know, fingers crossed for that. But thank you ever so much for listening. And again, if you are enjoying this podcast, Share it around. Follow me on Twitter at Paranormal Blip, on Instagram, Paranormal underscore Blip underscore podcast. And you can email me, ParanormalBlip at gmail.com. All right. See you later.